The interchange is brought to you by PG&E. PG&E is helping to electrify corporate fleet vehicles. And if you're a company or municipality and you want to electrify your fleets, get in touch with an EV specialist over at PG&E at pge.com forward slash GTM. This podcast is brought to you by Uplight. Uplight has a suite of software and engagement tools that deliver customer experiences like Amazon and Netflix. Utilities, if you need to up your game on customer experience and customer satisfaction, you should turn to Uplight. And if you want to learn more about Uplight's expanding services to help remake the utility-customer relationship, visit uplight.com. This is The Interchange, conversations about the future of energy from GTM. I'm Stephen Lacey. No, that's not right. I'm Shale Khan, uh, and I'm a managing director at Energy Impact Partners. I am here filling in as primary host rather than just the lowly co-host that I usually provide uh, because Stephen is out on paternity leave, enjoying the virtues of fatherhood. Uh, He'll be back next week, the week after, nobody knows, soon. Um, But in the meantime, I am pleased to be here with my friend and colleague, Adam James. Uh, Adam James currently works with me at EIP as our chief of staff, our illustrious chief of staff. Um, Prior to that, um, earlier in his career, worked with me before at GTM uh, when he led our global solar markets coverage from the obvious outpost of South Bend, Indiana. And then he deserted us uh, to go to what was then a small residential solar company called Solar City, uh, and then ultimately uh, played a role in Tesla's energy business and sort of the whole growth of the Powerwall and everything Tesla was doing back when Solar City was still an exciting part of it. Um, Adam, excited to have you here. Hello, I'm excited to be here. Does does this mean that I'm Shale this week? Uh, right. I guess I'm Stephen and, and you're Shale. Okay. Um, we are here to talk about distributed energy resource aggregation, um, and I just want to say it's not the main topic of discussion today. But Adam, you are barred from talking about capacity markets. What? This is. <laughs> Hold on. I was only uh, I'm only on the podcast because I was promised 45 minutes of capacity markets discussion. Although now that I'm thinking about it, Stephen did not say that he was going to leave that in. Right. No, we edit heavily. So, um, I mean, you can talk about capacity markets all you want. I, I won't be here for it. Um, what we are talking about is the aggregation of a pack of distributed energy resources to provide some kind of benefit to the grid. Um, and I think the reason that we're talking about it is that, you know, you and I were chatting recently, and it sort of occurred to us that this is a topic that has been discussed for years. And in fact, as we'll talk about, there has been regulatory action around it. Um, there's been a lot of excitement around it. Companies have spun up around this idea. But I think what probably has gone unrecognized um, by most folks anyway, is that it's actually happening quite a lot. And it's happening in very different contexts throughout different parts of the power market in the US and even in some international markets. So I think what we want to do here is talk a little bit about why we should care about DER aggregation in the first place, sort of get the lay of the land on why this is a challenge. um, And 
then talk about a bunch of really specific examples of what's actually happening today and then close out with a little bit of speculation as to where it might head. So let's start with the basic question. What are distributed energy resources for the purpose of this conversation and why should we care if they are aggregated? Well, on one, it seems like what would be fair to include is storage, uh, storage with solar. I think you could arguably say just solar, although that might be a little bit more tenuous as we talk about how it might link up uh, to wholesale markets or uh, into regulated utilities. Um, Smart thermostats and hot water heaters, smart hot water heaters. Those would be the big ones for me. What else? What else am I missing? Well, I think as we get more electric vehicles on the grid, if they if there's you know controlled charging, uh, smart charging, that's that could be a huge source of flexible right. load. I mean, in general, I think what we're talking about is any source of load flexibility, demand flexibility um, behind the meter. So that's could be residential, like thermostats, could be commercial, industrial, more like sort of traditional demand response stuff. Um, so any flexible load which includes smart water heaters, smart EV chargers, and so on, and then any kind of behind-the-meter storage, um, so batteries, uh, and possibly behind-the-meter generation, as you discussed. Yeah, and it might also make sense to you know at least have a little section for other devices in the home that could are, either are or could be uh, controllable in the future. Um, I think some of those are not super big in play right now, you know, things like refrigerators or washing machines or whatever, but it's plausible that uh, as kind of IoT progresses, that those things will be in play as well. Right. And those things matter. But I mean, I do think one thing that people often don't account for is the fact that in most homes, let's just talk about the residential side for a second. In most homes, it doesn't take control of that many devices to actually have control of a big chunk of the load in a house. So like typical load profile for a home in, let's just say Southern US, you know, roughly 50% of your electricity load is going to be HVAC. Um, So the thermostat controls half of the load on its own. Add a water heater to that and you've got another maybe what, 20%, something like that. So even just between those two devices, a smart water heater and a smart thermostat, you've got the majority of the load in the home. And then if that house also has an electric vehicle, that's obviously a huge controllable load. And if it has a battery, even more so. So, you know, the clothes washers and dryers and refrigerators and even lighting, those things matter, but you don't need them in order to actually get control of like a big chunk of the load in the home. Right. Although it is interesting to think about this when we talk about the aggregation piece, because in order for something to be meaningful from an aggregation perspective, it doesn't need to be most of the load in a home. It actually just needs to be a significant amount of load in net terms. So you put enough, you know, refrigerators together and that is actually, or it could be actually meaningful at some point in the future. Right. That's a good point. Okay. So that's a good segue then into the second part of the question. Why do we care if these are aggregated? Yeah. I've been thinking about this and I, you know, I normally hate the Airbnb to energy comparisons because I think it reminds me too much of the peer-to-peer energy transactions uh, discussion, which I think is not super plausible. But the part about Airbnb that I do think kind of gives a good corollary for why this would matter is that uh, what Airbnb did as a business was recognize that there's this pretty expensive but underutilized asset in the home and that by building some kind of a network, you can allow people to plug into and utilize that value. 
And today, at least when it comes to storage especially, um, most of that is largely not utilized to its maximum potential by the people who have it on their homes. And it's a pretty expensive investment. And so there's a lot of room in there to get more value out of it if you can find a way to let somebody else use it or let other entities use it in the case of you know, grid services. Um, so just to give an example, if you're a customer and you put up you know, a power wall or an LG Chem, uh, some kind of storage system on your home, and you have it there primarily because you're just worried about there being a blackout, uh, most of the time it's just sitting there and isn't really doing much for you. And even if you're doing some load shifting and taking advantage of you know the differences between retail rates during the day, there's still going to be some portion of it that's unused, especially when you look at those things at scale. And so uh, to me, I think some of it just comes down to there's a lot of untapped potential when you look at these kinds of resources at scale, and there's an opportunity for customers to get a lot more value by you know basically Air, Airbnb being some of their you know some of their technology when they're not using it. Yeah, I think there's there's two different lenses through which you can look at it. That's a good explanation of the first lens, which is the potential customer value. You know, distributed energy resources are inherently customer sited. So by unlocking value, by aggregating a bunch of these resources and getting some economics out of that. Um, one way or another, you can pass through some of that value to the end user, to the customer where the thing is cited. So you can make this stuff cheaper. One example of that would be our colleague, our joint colleague, Andy Lubershain, who's been on this podcast before, ran some numbers for a theoretical smart electric water heater in MISO territory in the Midwest, in the U.S., and said if you could extract all the the theoretical value um out of the energy and ancillary services markets and capacity markets in MISO with an electric water heater, um, and by just adding a smart controller to an existing water heater, you could entirely pay back that water heater over a five-year period and then actually earn some money. So in theory, if you could do all of that, you could literally give away these smart water heater controllers and in fact even give some dollars along with it in theory, right? So there's like enormous economic value to be extracted for that customer in theory. Um, and then from the grids perspective, which I think is the second lens, you know, we have this, this big dynamic that we've talked about a million times before on this podcast of increasing renewable energy penetration. And, uh, because of that increasing intermittency on the grid and therefore the kind of coin of the realm increasingly being, the provision of flexibility of one kind or another. And that flexibility can come from um, centralized resources. They can come from big batteries and from, you know, thermal generation that can ramp up and down. It can come from all that stuff, but there's also this huge untapped potential for DERs to provide that flexibility. Um, And anywhere from, you know, estimates range from say in the, in the middle of, the 2020s, depending on how much of this stuff gets installed, you have the capacity to provide enough flexibility to meet maybe 15, 20, even 30% of, of peak load in the entire country um, just via the control of these behind the meter resources. Now, will that all happen? You know, probably not, but that's, that's a, a huge amount. So it's, it could potentially be good for the customer, potentially good for the grid. Yeah. And, and the reason that 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 matters to take another half a step is because traditionally the response to why, you know, why do we why do we build what we build is to just make sure that customers have energy whenever they need it. And so the way that we've done that historically has been to overbuild dramatically. And when we talk about 
overbuilding. Uh, it's, you know, lots of power plants that sit around for some portion of the year unused peaker plants or some that just ramp up and ramp down as the as you climb up the load curve so the load following stuff and then uh, below that kind of sits the the base load and so what's happening now is that we're in a situation with a lot of these customers where when they need energy at any given time we can meet that by ramping up things that might be distributed rather than building a massive power plant that has to sit there for another 30 40 years of its useful life even if it's not getting run all the time and since every year there's more retirements and you know utility commissions across the country are asking so what do we do now to replace you know these retiring coal plants or whatever it might be uh, every year that there's another alternative or another resource in play like you know flexibility from demand side resources uh, is a year where something starts to significantly change in terms of the composition of the grid right and that that also you alluded to i think one thing we should be clear on which is the distinction between what we're talking about der aggregation and traditional demand response this is i realize like a little bit wonky but i think it's sort of important because you know it's worth remembering demand response is not a new thing um, and demand response is in fact the control of loads in order to benefit the grid you know it's you shave peak demand um when you are called upon and that's demand response and that that's been a you know a big market for what a decade now probably so one one key distinction between this sort of like new wave of der aggregation versus the old school demand response is one it's smaller resources typically because most demand response historically has been large commercial and industrial loads but two it's more than just um load shaving at peak times. We're talking about shifting load. We're talking about feeding back into the grid in the case of batteries or, you know, behind the meter generation. So it's providing more services, potentially providing ancillary services. Like it's, it's treating aggregated DERs, um, as if they can provide the full scope of capabilities that a generator could. Exactly. Okay. So why is this hard? Like, why hasn't this already happened at full scale? Well, I think the simple answer is, uh, and it's not popular, but is that just markets have rules, right? And um, there's nothing really that sinister about that. Uh, the way that markets have been designed has been to make sure that, so, so if you've got those two things you're trying to ensure, right, that customers can get electricity and energy whenever they want. But on the other hand, you have to kind of plan in advance in order to be able to do that. The purpose of the market and the purpose of market rules and even the purpose of the regulatory regimes for vertically integrated utilities is to just bridge the gap between what technology can do at any given point in time and what a customer needs. And so all the market rules have been designed for the last 100 plus years uh, based on what the technologies that were available at that time were just literally capable of doing. And what's different and new, and this is especially true of storage out of all the ones we've talked about the most, is that storage is just capable of doing things that a lot of those other resources are just not capable of doing, certainly not anything behind the meter or that can be customer cited. Uh, and so the reason this is so hard is because all the rules are designed for technology uh, that's been around for the last hundred years, and it hasn't really taken into account storage. Uh, one caveat to that that you raised a little bit a second ago is that for demand response, um, demand response has had, you know, in the last few years, had has already done a lot of legwork to kind of open up new parts of the market uh, in order to get um, kind of recognition or, or create streams of value for when you don't uh, have a load event uh, instead of having a generation event. So in other words, getting it treated, having the markets recognize that it's functionally the same thing to have 
customers use 10 megawatts less energy as it is to fire up a gas plant for 10 megawatts of energy. Uh, and so a lot of that initial legwork done by demand response advocates and companies uh, is part of what's being used to propel the kind of DER aggregation plays forward today. But the short answer is markets have rules. The rules aren't there yet in a lot of cases. This podcast is brought to you by Uplight, a utility software and analytics leader that you once knew as Tendril and Simple Energy. That's right. Tendril recently made acquisitions of First Fuel and Energy Savvy and EEME, and then it merged with Simple Energy, and the result is Uplight. This is a company that now offers an end-to-end product for utility customer engagement. It transcends silos within power companies and helps improve interaction across every channel, program, and solution. This enables utilities to provide the personalized experiences that customers have now come to expect. Or if you want to learn more about Uplight, and what they're up to, it's uplight.com slash GTM to learn more. You know, corporate fleet vehicles are getting electrified at a pretty rapid pace. Electric buses are starting to take hold. Big corporations are recognizing that they have to make their vehicles electric. And PG&E is doing the best that it can to help electrify school buses and transit buses, delivery vehicles, all sorts of vehicles for municipalities and corporations. So if you're in California, you're in PG&E service territory, you can get the financial, logistical, and construction support for electrifying your fleet. Get in touch with one of PG&E's EV specialists to learn more at pge.com slash GTM. We should, we should spend a minute um, separating out the sort of two distinct kinds of markets, at least in the U.S., right? We're like a vertically integrated utility territory versus a market with a wholesale market because the sort of rules and regulations side that's probably more relevant to where there are wholesale markets right uh, I, I think it's kind of true in both I mean it's just different sets of rules and regulations and this will could get us down into a very 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 deep rabbit hole but you know for example in vertically integrated utility territories they've well one they sometimes do have to procure power from wholesale markets so they're not you know totally unexposed to that. Um, but the other thing is they have things like procurement processes that they have to adhere to or distribution planning. And, and all those things are you know regulated regimes as well. Um, so I would kind of include those in the world of market rules. But uh, but yeah, I think for the, for the purposes of where a lot of the aggregation is happening, where we're talking about a lot of the aggregation happening, there's kind of the wholesale market rules, which are the ones that would govern you know the seven ISOs and RTOs in the country, plus you know the, the great independent state of Texas with their own with their own grid down there. Um, and then there's two more up in Canada. Right. Okay. And so that that's relevant to on the rules and regulations front. Um, there was this major activity at FERC. We were just, by the way, discussing whether it's FERC or the FERC. Um, I tough. forgot. Where do, you, where do you land on this? Well, so I, I think it's FERC, even though I know that I'm probably wrong. Because here's the thing. If you think about like, you know, the CIA, the FBI. We never say FBI, just kind of, well, maybe we do. No, you say the FBI. Maybe I've talked myself back into No, no, I'm, I'm, now I'm on your side. Right, if you're referring yeah. to them. They're the okay. FBI, so it is the FERC. So yeah. the FERC seems right. But I do also think there's a generational divide on this and that the energy wonks of old say the FERC. And then the last, you know, the, the new, the young bloods in the last 10 years say just FERC. 
And I think energy Twitter probably has a has a part to play in that because of the character limit. Man, bunch of rebels. That's my theory. Those those millennial yeah, going against lovers. the grain. Um, okay, so, so so the FERC um, had some. So the FERC. Uh, well, you can't hold on. You can't say that for the rest of the. I mean, you do. You, you're not siding with the old guard on this. We have to say FERC for the podcast. Right? No, I'm old school. I'm uh, I, I side with the the old guys. You can be the young blood. The FERC. Um, which regulates the wholesale market, so regulates the ISOs and RTOs, um, had this kind of landmark ruling a few years ago, uh, which had two parts to it. One part of it was all about energy storage and, and basically trying to address what you were describing before, which is forcing all the ISOs and RTOs to set rules um, to enable energy storage to play effectively. Um, but then the second part of it was around DERs and effectively the same thing, basically telling all the ISOs and RTOs to set rules um, around which aggregations of distributed energy resources could participate. The the storage part of that ruling, I think, has gone a lot faster through the FERC pro- the FERC's process um, than the DER aggregation one has. Right? Yeah, I think that's right, and and that's kind of understandable. I mean, and well, I guess stepping back even further, it's 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 understandable because the DER aggregation piece of this is a lot more complicated. There's obviously you know it is an aggregation. There's a lot of individual devices you have to figure out what to do with. And I could kind of talk through at least two or three of the obvious things about that that would make it more challenging. But even on the energy storage side, they set a pretty ambitious, in my mind, timeline for compliance. Um, and you know, a few of the ISOs have already requested extensions to that. Um, so it's not actually moving. It's not even that hasn't been really a rapidly moving overnight transformation. Hmm. Okay. So we have this kind of ongoing regulatory transformation that mostly is basically asking the wholesale market operators to figure out rules to allow DERs to aggregate and to participate. Um, But in the meantime, as that's happening, we actually have a bunch of examples of DER aggregations that are taking place and providing value. So I think we um, we should run through some of the more interesting ones and and let's separate them out into sort of categories both by market type and by geography. So let's start with the northeast in the US where there's a few different versions of this. Um how about starting in the the great state of Vermont first because this is one I think you know intimately. The hippies. Yeah. Um <laughs> <laughs> because you're a hippie. That's what I meant. Yeah, I get I get a lot of flack for for being a hippie, which is funny given how much I really love all the markets related stuff. You'd think that I'd be way less into that. But yes, our our so our our hippie friends up in the up in Vermont um are really um, moving probably the most aggressively in terms of having a utility who is recognizing and then internalizing the benefits of uh, distributed energy resources. So uh, this has been written about a bunch, but Green Mountain Power's program that they've run with Tesla uh, and also got a write-up from uh, the Rocky Mountain Institute a little while back has been pretty, in my mind, groundbreaking in terms of showing what you can do as a regulated utility. Uh, so they started out this program with in 2015 with the Powerwall uh, 1.0, and they had a program where you paid roughly $30, $40 a month as a customer, and you had it available to you for backup. So some kind of portion of the battery was carved out, and it was yours. And if there was a, you know, some kind of an outage, you got to use the battery as much as you want. Um, but they retained the right to use some of that battery if they needed it. 
And what I found really interesting about this is that if you go back and read their you know, press releases and a lot of their statements about when they were starting that program out where they thought the value was going to be, uh, it was mostly in the capacity offsetting the tra- the capacity and transmission peaks. So when your utility like uh, Green Mountain Power, the way that that works is that every year they look at what was the system peak. So what, at what point was demand the absolute highest? And then they you have to uh, meet, have capacity to meet that peak. Um, and you have to be sure to procure capacity that will meet that peak. And so what they wanted to do and what they thought that the main purpose of the batteries was going to be at first was that they were going to get value out of just being able to say, look, like even though the peak will be whatever number in you know, the peak of summer on that hottest day, on that day, we actually won't need to have an extra power plant or we won't need to buy extra you know, energy from the market because we'll have all these batteries in homes distributed across our territory and we'll tap into those on those really hot days to meet that need. And they'll have some value that will get recognized by that. So they started out thinking that the primary value was going to be in offsetting those capacity and transmission peaks. But as the program went on and they got more of these installed in homes, when they had one really hot day and you know the peak of summer and it exceeded what they had already procured energy for, normally they would have had to go back to the market to buy more energy. But instead of that, they got to tap into those power walls and it saved them about $500,000 in fuel costs that day. Um, and so it's just interesting how you know th- that showed this kind of third value stream that you can get out of having all these customer cited storage units uh, distributed across their territory. And then when the Powerwall 2 came out, they dropped that down to about $15 a month, uh, where the customer leases it. And at the end of that you know, process, they own the Powerwall outright. Um, and uh, yeah, and so I think what's interesting about that whole program overall is it just shows that if you've got a vertically integrated utility who's got customers captive in their territory, if they recognize that there's some value to having these assets out there, they can actually form their own marketing plan, go to the customers, get them in the field, uh, you know, structure the contracts in such a way that they get to use them, and then they can internally recognize those benefits, which is actually a pretty fast path to market for you know, distributed resource aggregation. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I thinking about it from the customer perspective, you know, admittedly I don't live in Vermont, so I don't know how often they have outages and things like that. Somehow thirty to forty dollars a month for a battery that's basically because they don't have time of use rates or anything, it's really just providing me backup. That sounds high, but fifteen dollars a month sounds totally reasonable. So I and also I think it's true that they had relatively slow adoption at first in the first sort of iteration of the program, and then the second iteration has been a lot more popular. Yeah, I think also thirty to forty dollars a month sounds like a lot, but uh, anytime you actually have an outage, if someone says to you in those moments, like, "Would you have been paying thirty to forty bucks a month to not have this situation?" A lot of people would actually sign up for that retro retroactively if they if they could because uh, it's a pain to have your power go out and all your food go bad and you know have to figure out something else to do um for the whole day and get out of your house so i think i think that's the other thing is that if you're in a place where you have somewhat frequent outage events uh the people's price tolerance for that is um it can vary and this gets to an interesting point that i think i'm, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on which is really like what is the value of backup and it's just whatever people are willing to pay for it, right? Which is one of the things that complicates the storage equation. Totally. I mean, that's one of the things that 
I've found so interesting and admittedly sort of surprising about this this rise of um, residential storage, which is that you know it's it's um, growing incredibly fast, despite the fact that the economics aren't that great. Um, setting aside whatever the value you assign to the backup, right? So it's just a it's a big distinction from solar, where solar was it took off because companies like Solar City and Sungevity and Sunrun offered PPAs and leases where you could save money from day one. Storage is taking off despite that not being true. I mean, sometimes it gets bundled in with solar and you can save money. You just save a little less money. But, you know, you're underwater on the economics of the storage itself. And it turns out that that people do assign uh, pretty significant value to the backup. And thus, it's just a, it's a different customer equation. And, you know, there had been a market for backup. There's a $2 billion annual market for backup generators, for residential backup generators in the U.S. It's basically dominated by one company. But I think what's happening now with batteries is it's unlocking a a wider pool of customers who, for whatever reason, weren't going to install a backup generator, but would install a battery. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think, you know, I'm interested to see also, because I have a theory, at least, that this early, these early adopters are not actually really people who are extremely motivated by the backup value. I think it's kind of like the early adopters for solar who, although it was great that they saved money, a lot of them were just, you know, emotionally, psychologically on board with the idea of having their own energy generators restored in their own homes. Um, And so I I don't even think we've started to tap into the market of people who really, really, really care about backup for backup's sake yet, which is what makes the early traction in this program so interesting. Right. I also think it's interesting that it's residential and not at all commercial because you know where backup is clearly and obviously more valuable but arguably where storage is not necessarily the right resource to provide it setting that aside is in the commercial sector where you have i mean depending on the type of customer you can have like a really meaningful economic impact if you have an outage or you know even worse if you're a hospital or something like that yeah Although some of that might just come down to sales strategy, right? And that, you know, it's it's always been hard, you know, solar too, it's been really hard to sell to commercial and industrial clients because it's usually, you know, a similar amount of legwork in terms of customer acquisition and the sales cycle, but you have to do a lot more uh, construction on the contract and the terms and the negotiation and the interconnection. Uh, and it might just be that, you know, for a lot of the storage companies right now, the fastest path the market is on resi. And so that's where they're pushing it the most, even though, as I said, that's not, you know, and as you said, that's not necessarily where the most value might be, economic value might be on day one. Right. And we'll get to some of the examples we're going to talk about. We should get back to these examples. But some of the examples we're going to talk about do include some commercial as well. But let's let's stay in the Northeast for a minute um, and, and stay with residential and talk about this other kind of landmark partnership, um, this time between National Grid and Sunrun. Yeah, which is an interesting one because it wasn't just a partnership. There was also uh, an equity injection into a lot of the pro- the projects that they had nationwide. Uh, but yeah, I mean, there's actually, I mean, there's a lot less publicly said about this one for sure. Um, you know, there's the and National Grid has a regulated arm and then an unregulated arm. And so within the regulated arm, which is, uh, you know, in downstate New York is where they said they were going to be focusing. They've got some programs, some residential programs that let you deploy one of these batteries. They also have, I think, uh, the ability to put in thermostats and smart hot water heaters, things like that. Uh, And, you know, same kind of deal where you get to participate in the utilities program for this. They get to use those distributed assets to offset some of their internal costs. Um, 
almost you know the same as the Green Mountain Power one, although a lot less well advertised, I would say. Uh, the thing about the Sunrun National Grid one that I actually found really interesting as I was digging into it is one, so they, you know, Sunrun won the 20 megawatts in the capacity markets in the uh, New England ISO, which is kind of the broader area in which that's situated. Um, and that would be through the kind of national grid unregulated territory, which is pretty interesting. And also through the equity injection that national grid had into a lot of those projects they got the rights to about 216 megawatts of projects uh, uh, that are scattered just across the country so there's 23 megawatts of those are in the new england iso 47 are in pjm 52 are in kaiso 13 are in the new york iso so it's actually there's this second level to that partnership that i think is interesting where it gives national grid's unregulated arm a way to get involved in DER aggregation in almost every other uh, ISO. Okay, so I'm going to make a temporary exception and allow you to talk about capacity markets oh, for a minute yes. because I knew you'd take the bait. Because that New England, yeah, because that New England ISO one, uh, just talking more about Sunrun, that also seems worthy of dwelling for a moment. Do you want to just explain what what that um, 20 megawatts that Sunrun won in the capacity market? is and why it's significant would i ever so i'm thrilled that i you took the bait and that i get to talk about capacity markets for 10 minutes 15 minutes what are you going to give me here all right uh so a capacity market in new england basically is just to ensure that the there's enough generation capacity built in order to meet peak demand so it's pretty simple there's some markets that are energy only where they say you've got to take the risk and build your generator so that uh, you know, and respond to these day ahead and real time energy only price signals. But there's other markets in New England. ISO is one of them where they say, look, that doesn't give enough uh, predictability or enough kind of long term enough of a long term price signal to generators to take the risk. And so what we're going to do is set up these periodic auctions where we say, how much capacity do you need in order to meet demand, uh, projected demand, and then they auction that off uh, to different generators. And so what was you know what made this a little bit of a landmark is that uh, this is 20 megawatts that's going to be coming from you know distributed storage resources in that region instead of a 20 megawatt uh, power plant. So there's a direct displacement that's occurring there, and it's displacing it in a way that uh, is looking ahead, right? So it's not even necessarily just about what's happening today. It's about looking at where they think demand will be and saying, you know, this is the kind of incremental capacity that we need in order to meet that demand in the future. Okay, let's move west uh, and talk about California. I like that we started in the Northeast because normally these conversations focus too much in California. But California is interesting because I find it so complex. There's just like a lot of different programs and the you know stuff at the utility level for demand response and then stuff at the ISO level. But I think perhaps the most interesting sort of uh, bit of DER aggregation that's going on in California is around this program with the acronym DRAM, the Demand Response Auction Mechanism. So sort of give an overview, I guess, of that program, and then we can talk about some of the different kinds of resources and players who are participating. Yeah. Uh, and I'm definitely not a DRAM expert, so I can kind of give the the high level on it. But basically, DRAM, there's you know two ways in which these players can get value from that part of the market. So one of those is the capacity part of the market, um, to sneak capacity markets in here again a little bit, uh, which which really there in California is much more about resource adequacy, where utilities have to 
demonstrate that they have procured enough resources to meet demand in their territories with a little bit of a buffer. Uh, and that's kind of set by you know the national liability coordinator, and it's a, it's a number that they got to meet. And so in order to meet that number, they would either have to buy that capacity from the you know, from the market, or uh, they held this auction and allowed folks to bid into the auction uh, as demand response and then let that kind of count as part of your resource adequacy. So in other words, they're saying, historically, we might have had, you know, 20 megawatts of load. And so we had to make sure that we had 20 megawatts of capacity to meet that 20 megawatts of load. Now, if you have them saying, from a demand response perspective, that we're going to ramp down five megawatts of that load, they only have to procure 15 megawatts from the market. Uh, and so the reason that this is a good deal for the vendors who are kind of bidding into the DRAM market is that uh, they bid in what it is that they will commit to doing at the price they will commit to doing it. Um, the utility gets credit for that capacity. And then the energy value of whatever it is that they've bid in. So when it actually comes to that day and they've got to kind of respond to a real-time price signal, they get to take whatever that value is out of the energy market. And so you've seen a lot of players who who bid into that auction uh, and they had it structured in an interesting way also so that it was, you know, kind of like bid at your best price um, rather than, you know, rewarding uh, rewarding the lowest cost bid and then, you know, or ha- setting a clearing price um, and so it was meant to kind of test out where is it that demand response and that distributed energy resources are today in terms of their price point. Uh, so that's kind of the high level of, the, of how the program works. You, utilities have to show that they've got enough resources uh, to maintain reliability. Uh, and the vendors like OhmConnect and AMS and STEM and others who we'll talk about get to play in the energy markets via that program. Yeah, and I think so. I think the DRAM program has... I don't know. I mean, I'm interested to get your take on it. I think I think generally has been viewed as successful, as we'll talk about. There are a, an interesting variety of resources that are participating and providing that capacity value and that energy today. It's also got its troubles. You know, there have been, I guess, and especially now there's going to be another iteration of it for the next few years where there's even increasing like measurement and verification requirements. And um, it, it can be a tough market to play in, but it, it certainly has spurred some interesting business models. So I think one thing we could do here is just quickly run through like three different versions of a business model that is enabled by DRAM. So version one would be aggregate a bunch of, you know, commercial scale batteries, um, but at a bunch of different customer locations and then use those to play in the market. Right. And so that's, you know, STEM is doing that. Our port, I, we should note, by the way, since we both work at EIP, National Grid, who we mentioned before, is one of our investors in the fund. Um, and the company I'm about to mention, Advanced Microgrid Solutions, is one of our portfolio companies. Um, so that's one version, right? Just get a bunch of batteries behind the meter from a bunch of different places, treat them as a single resource uh, in a single sort of aggregated area, and then bid them in. Right. And what's funny about that now is that that's kind of, in, in some ways, that's become mainstream, right? Like demand resp- response, classic demand response, even if you've got storage as the agent for making it happen, uh, is kind of commonplace. So that's, in, in some ways, is the least exciting of all the models, uh, which is crazy because a few years ago, that was still fringe, still pretty fringe. But now that feels like, of all the ones that we have examples of, is one of the most vanilla. Right. I guess that's true. I mean, there's still not that many companies doing it. 
Um, and especially doing like, you know, one of the things that AMS can do with those batteries that is still really hard is you're, you're trying to simultaneously get this value out of the, um, the utility or the wholesale market and also offer demand charge shaving to the customer. Um, so optimizing against those two things is still kind of tough and there aren't that many companies doing it, but it's true that it's been around for a few years now. So maybe is considered to be a little bit more mainstream. Um, but let's talk about some of the the other example. So how about what if you just aggregate up a bunch of residential customers and give them, you know, rewards to turn down their thermostats and things like that? This is the Ohm Connect model. Yeah, which is really interesting because of something that you said earlier, which is that, you know, historically demand response has kind of been a commercial and industrial game uh, where they're they're moving these gigantic loads. And I think Ohm Connect is getting more into almost what I was saying about how it's not necessarily the total home load that matters quite as much as your the scale of distribution that you've got. And so if you've got a thousand of these devices that can just drop, you know, either drop the temperature in the ha- in the home a little bit or, you know, you know, run run a few of your devices a little bit later, uh, any of that kind of functionality, if you have that aggregated over a wide enough scale, you don't actually have to have that significant of a change in the consumption level in order for it to be meaningful. Um, and I, I mean, I love the Ohm Connect model. I'm curious about if you if you think what, what you think about that business model overall, but um, to give the quick version, I mean, they basically send you a device, right, that you you plug in and um, and then they'll send you price signals about to respond to. Yeah. I mean, I look, I think if it, it's notori- notoriously difficult to unlock um, residential load behavior change. And so if they can do that at scale, it's a really big deal. Um, and then there's these sort of like middle layers that have have built up um, that I think present really interesting opportunities to aggregate up sort of diverse portfolios of resources. Because one of the things, if you, if you look back at everything we've talked about thus far, right, the Green Mountain Power One, that's a bunch of residential batteries. The National Grid, Sunrun, and the Sunrun in New England ISO, that's a bunch of batteries with or without solar. Ohm Connect is a bunch of thermostats, basically, a bunch of load control. STEM and AMS are largely a bunch of batteries at this point. Um, so it's, they're sort of monolithic resources for the most part. But in theory, you know, different resources have different profiles. Um, and so in the, if they're aggregated together, potentially the some of the parts could be worth more than... Um, the parts on their own. So the player that I think most exemplifies like trying to take advantage of that would be Leap. Yeah. And that's kind of the the idea of having a market that sits underneath the market, right? Um, because the wholesale market at, you know, at the highest level uh, is, as we talked about earlier, is really just used to these big generators bidding in at whatever their price is, right? And, and we can be talking uh, pretty massive scale generation. And so the wholesale market is really used to dealing with things at scale, whereas distributed these distributed resource aggregations are like by their very definition spread out over a wide area and might, as you say, constitute a bunch of different kinds of technology. And so I think what Leap has done really well is identify that there's an opportunity to be a middleman between that high level market and all of those individual resources. Uh, and so you know, business model wise, I think what they're doing is smart, which is to take each of those individual resource aggregations and 
uh, fit them together like puzzle pieces and say, you know, we've got a bunch of EV chargers over here. We've got a bunch of storage resources over here. We've got a bunch of thermostats over there. Um, if we bid all of this together as one package, we can actually get a better price. Uh, and then we can pass that price through to uh, those resources individually. And the other nice thing about that is that it kind of helps people in terms of specialization of labor just do what they're best at. You know, like most aggregators for demand response or otherwise, what they're best at is going out and getting customers. And that takes a tremendous amount of work to do. Uh, they don't necessarily know or have the in house capabilities built out to say what's the right price signal uh, to make these resources respond, what's going to be the right time to bid them. Uh, you know, when is when should I step in and and out of the market? Um, you know, how do I respond on time? Uh, how do I access the market? Do I even have kind of the permissions to do that? Uh, I mean, there's a lot of overhead that goes into managing wholesale market participation, which if you're a major utility or have a bunch of genera- generators under your control is no big deal. But if you're just running a bunch of thermostats, um, you know, it's going to be much harder to have that capability. So I think Leap's got an interest is a really good example of one of these uh, intermediary kind of companies that's that's popping up to provide a very specific service uh, in a way that ideally should accelerate the market a lot more. Okay, two more examples to run through briefly, and then we should talk about sort of where we think this is all heading. Um, but the other one, the first of the the last two is also in California, but I think is uh, is a different example that's sort of interesting. Back to Sunrun, but this time this is a this is a more recent partnership that Sunrun has announced with East Bay Community Energy, which is the community choice aggregator for the Eastern Bay Area, in fact, where I live, um, so Berkeley, Oakland, that whole region. Um, so just describe briefly what the Sunrun East Bay Community Energy deal looks like. So this one, as far as I understand it, was just a matter of, uh, you know, instead of procuring new when they were retiring a plant which was running on literally jet fuel uh, which is uh, surprise surprise not so great for the environment and not super consistent with what uh, you know the folks in Berkeley and Oakland would want out of their uh, new utility provider um, so when the time came to replace that and find something new uh, Sunrun basically stepped in and said we can meet this demand instead of you know procuring another, uh, generator, or instead of extending the life of this generator that you've got now, that's running running jet fuel. Uh, so that's you know that's the basic structure of it. And I think this one is interesting because CCAs are so responsive to their customers, right? Like, and in this particular case, uh, you've got customers who obviously, if they if they can, are going to choose a cleaner source of energy over a, a dirty one. And uh, this gave them an alternative way to do that. Yeah, and and not just cleaner, but you know the other premise upon which CCAs. I think writ large are um, are based is local, right? So they're they're sort of they they have an inherent preference for local resources, which are more likely to be distributed resources. So they're they're actually really good candidates for these DER aggregations when they have capacity requirements that they have to meet. So that one's interesting. I mean, you know, it'll be interesting to see whether more CCAs do something like that. I wouldn't be surprised to see it as California's CCAs continue to mature and, and figure out how they can procure to meet their obligations. Okay, so last example, we're we're going to finish our global tour by jumping over the Pacific and talking about Australia and in fact going back to Tesla again where we started with Green Mountain Power, but this time talking about this virtual power plant that has gained a lot of attention at a couple of different milestones, I think, because um, it's been at least it was announced a, a couple of years ago. But um, tell us a little bit about this virtual power plant program in Australia. 
Well, Australia, I mean, everyone knows about Elon's big battery, right? And I think that um, that got folks in the energy world talking about frequency regulation more than I'd ever heard frequency regulation talked about before. Uh, but but what that did, and I'll kind of starting with that rather than VPPs to say that that kind of proved that there is an economic case for storage in frequency regulation markets. And, uh, you know, we won't do 45 minutes on frequency regulation, but a good way to think about it is it's just kind of like monitoring the blood pressure of the grid. Um, and so having some kind of a resource that can can step in and do that storage is for a variety of reasons, technology reasons, is particularly good at doing that. Uh, so what Australia has no- noticed when that happened was that uh, there might be an opportunity for storage to do that more. And so they've set up this program for what they call virtual power plants, which uh, really is just another way of talking about these distributed energy resource aggregations that are scattered across a wide area. Uh, and so the program that you're referring to, the one that's I think is super interesting, is with AGL, who's doing it both with Tesla and with LG Chem, uh, where they are allowing customers to deploy those batteries in their home, uh, and then they are taking, uh, you know, again, like kind of reserving the rights to some of those uh, batteries in order to uh, bid into frequency regulation markets or the ancillary services markets in uh, in Australia. And the broader program that's being run by the um, by the kind of the energy regulator there uh, is pretty progressive on that. And, you know, they're doing a good job, I think, of setting up a general framework to test out what is it that storage can do uh, in these ancillary service markets. Um, and I, you know, I'd posit a theory here, which is that there are going to be lessons learned out of that that will be super transferable to other markets in the U.S. And, you know, I, th- I think what we'll see is that some of the other ISOs in the U.S. who are trying to figure out what to do to meet and kind of be compliant with uh, the FERC order around this stuff are going to look to what happens in the Australian program, since they're the ones who are really going super hard on uh, what can storage do in ancillary services. All right. So, I mean, it's also worth noting, these are not all the examples, right? We we came up with a list off the top of our heads, but there are others as well. And so I think, you know, the takeaway for me here is there's more of this happening than I had realized, you know, before we we put this whole list together. It's actually becoming somewhat mainstream already, albeit with, you know, lots of these different kind of one-off projects and totally different business models, but it's happening. Um, So I guess to to close out, let's speculate a little bit about where we think this will head. We could do this via some kind of rapid fire questions that I guess we could both try to answer. Um, And let's look like five years out, right? They're six years out to make it an even number. So let's talk about 2025. So first question, do you think that in 2025, there will be more of this DER aggregation in vertically integrated markets, you know, like Green Mountain Power or in wholesale markets like the New England ISO Sunrun example? I think five years, we'll see more in wholesale markets. uh, But I would say over 10 years, we'll see more in vertically integrated markets. So the reason for that is that I think more people are going to be willing to take the risk in wholesale markets, and they're more used to taking the risks in wholesale competitive markets where they're being kind of driven to. Uh, But that once it's been proven out, uh, there's a much faster path to market in a vertically integrated territory. And once utilities see that, I think they will ramp it up significantly. What do you think? I think I agree with you. I think there's a forcing function in the wholesale markets right now, which is coming via regulation. Um, and the vertically integrated markets don't have that kind of forcing function. But I do think ultimately 
there's a big opportunity in vertically integrated markets and utilities are going to start testing it out and then they can deploy it at really large scale once they do. So I think I'm with you. Okay. Um, next question from the business model standpoint, we've, we've described a bunch of different business models. Do you think that ultimately this consolidates and you have a small number of aggregators of DERs who are doing the vast majority of DER aggregation? I think this is sort of how the demand response world has played out. There's, there's a, a small number of large DR players, or do you think that it ends up being really, I guess, distributed in nature with lots of small aggregations and aggregators and these kind of like loose confederacies amongst them? Yeah, I think in the, my guess here, at least, is that in the five-year window, people will kind of largely stick to their lanes, right? Um, Because each of these things, steps that's involved in the process is really pretty tough to do. So I think there'll be companies that are really, really great at customer acquisition and the kind of installation piece of it. Uh, And then you'll have the OEMs slash kind of, you know, more developers or folks like Sunrun who have a, have a slightly wider spread uh, who are maybe a half a step up from them and, and aggregating those and then some independent aggregators as well. And they'll keep plugging along. And then you'll have, you know, folks like leap and AMS and others who are providing specialty services uh, in translating that value up into wholesale markets Um, And so I think within each of those lanes in the next five years, people will just get more and more specialized. But uh, again, to expand the time horizon, I think that within 10 years, almost every step of that will be commoditized. And so what you that you will see more vertically integrated players who can do the whole stack, um, everything from the customer acquisition to linking that up to getting value out of the wholesale market and back down again. Uh, What do you think? I guess this is consistent with what you're saying. I guess my view is that the individual, I think you'll always have a group of companies that are good at selling customers on things. And those companies aren't inherently going to be the ones who know how to aggregate or even have the capability to aggregate in the way that the grid needs because they'll have certain resources in certain locations. So there's always going to be some value in some layer sitting in between those resources and the wholesale markets themselves, aggregating them up and combining them and actually providing that interface. So I guess where I think we end up with is a really distributed set of resources um, with a somewhat centralized set of aggregators who are providing the layer in between the wholesale market and the and the resources themselves. All right, final question. You uh, you have to pick one resource, one behind the meter resource uh, that you think is going to be the you know single largest provider of this DER aggregation value in 2025. What resource do you pick? I think it's thermostats. I'm going with thermostats. Mm-hmm. And so my, my reason for that, before you tell me I'm wrong, is that it's... Uh, Storage is is expensive, and I think if, even if you look at solar penetration, like you know, it still isn't. It's not a hundred percent, right? It's like five percent, six percent, seven percent for distributed residential storage or solar. Uh, whereas thermostats, literally every single person has a thermostat, um, and you know, I think it's actually to its advantage that nobody really cares that much about their thermostat and might be more inclined to switch it out uh, if it's cost competitive, which. All this stuff we're talking about, extracting value from wholesale markets, should ideally do translate to a more cost-competitive product. Uh, And I think it's the one that, for whatever reason, utilities like the most. And so it's going to have the least friction uh, in the market. So although it is a pretty small device uh, comparably to EV charging, for example, uh, I think that's going to be the one that, that wins the day. 
Mm, you scooped me. I mean, I, I actually think you're probably right in the <laughs> time frame that we were talking about. But I think if I can allow myself a longer time frame, since you've done that for every single one of the questions that I've asked, um, I pick EV chargers. You know, they they're just a huge amount of load, and they're going to be an increasing amount of load as we get higher and higher fast charging. Um, so I, I think ultimately EV chargers are going to be incredibly valuable DERs once we figure out how to deal with you know, when people need to charge and, and how to do smart charging in a way that's really customer friendly. So ultimately I think EV chargers are going to be the winner, but yeah, sure. In the meantime, it's, it's, it's almost definitely thermostats. Well, thank you for taking this time. Uh, Adam James is the illustrious chief of staff at energy impact partners. I am shale Khan, a managing director at energy impact partners. Um, I'm amazed to those of you who have listened all the way through this entire podcast, I promise you Stephen Lacey will be back, keeping us from getting too wonky <laughs> very soon. Uh, but in the meantime, this is The Interchange, conversations about the future of energy from GTM. GTM.